Welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Melissa Darby, who's a senior lecturer at the University of Waikato in the School of Education. Now, Melissa is co-director of the Early Years Research Centre at the University of Waikato. She's also co-editor of a blog for the New Zealand Association for Research and Education, and she's on the editorial board for the Journal of the International Literacy Association. So, Melissa has a long background in literacy, and today I want to talk to her about the state of our education system when it comes to literacy, and in fact how the Ministry of Education is now defining literacy. This involves the new concept of multi-literacies, but we'll get into that shortly. Welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast, Melissa. Thanks for having me, Michael. Pleasure to be here. I thought a good place to start would be the so-called reading wars. Now, this is something that's been much debated in our media of late, and in fact, going back quite a long way, we've seen some pretty bad data out of the ministry and out of our PISA results over the last few years, showing that literacy, defined in terms of reading and writing, Mm. has been declining for some time. And... Many people have argued that that's because we haven't been following scientific evidence on how children best learn to read. I'm interested just to open up with on your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it's an interesting discussion or debate that's been raging for some time now. And certainly not many would disagree that something needs to be done about the appalling literacy rates that too many New Zealand children or outcomes that too many New Zealand children experience. But I worry that there's not sort of one single silver bullet approach to learning to read. I think that with structured literacy, there's some really good data behind some of the gains that have been made around decoding and ensuring children have that basic understanding of phoneme-grapheme relationships. However, there's more to it than that. You know, people seldom talk about the home literacy environment, for example. That plays an enormous part in the outcomes children experience. And if children come from homes where reading isn't valued, where they aren't taught that literacy is a skill to acquire, but also a tool to use in a range of areas across our lifetime, then they're at a serious disadvantage compared to children who come from homes where that, you know, those sorts of values are passed on and practices are taught. So while I think that structured literacy seems to be making some real gains at the moment in certain areas and for certain children, The idea that it's going to solve all our problems, I think, is really shallow. We need to look further afield than that and into a range of areas that impact on children's outcomes. I think as well that, you know, plenty of children have learned to read over time under various approaches, which shows that there isn't just one sort of factor that plays a part in how children learn to read and the skills they gain. But finally, there's some research that's come out of England where they've been doing structured literacy for some time, that while the children have very good decoding skills, it's quite boring. And, you know, a lot of the sort of love of reading and the reading for pleasure, which also plays a big part in children's literacy acquisition and and experience, the outcomes they experience, it sort of destroyed some of that. So while I think the jury's still out on what structured literacy is going to do in New Zealand schools, because I think we need to look beyond the approaches to other environmental factors as well, and not be afraid to call some of those out. Right. Well, I, I certainly take your point on the importance of having a, a home environment that values the ability to read and write, and 
where children are read to from a young age so that they know what a book is and mm. and they get the idea that the little marks on the page carry meaning and yes. and so on. And I also agree that it's not enough to decode. I, I guess mm. where we, you and I may have a different point of view is that for me, mm. the evidence is pretty clear that at the beginning of stages of actually learning to decode, focusing mm. on that one thing of the correspondence between the spelling and the sound is mm. for, well, I would say no child is disadvantaged by that. The, the, I agree. Yeah. So maybe, maybe we, we don't disagree. And perhaps one way to put it would be that that kind of early phonics is a necessary but not sufficient condition to learn to be a, 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 a fluent reader. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's a, it's a crucial skill. You know, we need to be able to decode words and understand what we're looking at on a page. We also need to understand what they mean. So vocabulary knowledge plays a really key part in it as well. There's almost a symbiotic relationship between those decoding skills and vocabulary knowledge. You know, children grow those skills in terms of decoding way before they actually start to learn to decode. So hearing lots of words in their home environment or in their early childhood environment helps them to, I guess, understand how they can identify those sounds if they can hear the sounds then they then are able to match up later those sounds to letters on a page there's lots of factors I guess that play a part and certainly decoding is an, a really crucial skill but on its own I don't think it's it's enough well it's not comprehension <laughs> is it that that's no. the thing and and uh, you're certainly right obviously that in order to recognize a word that you haven't seen before in print Maybe it's a regularly spelled word so you can sound it out. Yes. But you're still not going to know what it is if it's not in your oral vocabulary. So I don't, I don't think anyone would argue that decoding is enough on its own. Certainly the rich oral vocabulary is, is important. And, of course, children don't start school equal in that regard. And I know quite a lot of your interest is in early childhood. Mm. Yes, and gosh, the research is actually quite compelling around the some how stark the differences are between children who have been exposed to a lot of words and they will have been exposed to that often in their home environment through lots of conversation, being read to a lot, having you know singing songs, but kind of also even underneath that, having a curiosity instilled in them about the world around them. Mm. So that they they're interested in things you know they want to hear stories they want to engage in conversation they want to tell you about the day and things like that so they those skills children who are in those sorts of home language environments or to be fair in early childhood centers they come to school with an enormous advantage several thousands of words you know larger vocabularies than children who aren't exposed to those things yeah and like so many things people don't like to hear it but it is linked to there's a correlation at least with socioeconomic status there's a correlation with parents own education experiences and own level of education so my point is I guess that we're afraid to look at some of these things more deeply because I guess we don't want to make people perhaps feel bad about themselves I'm not really sure but you know a lot of my work has focused on growing some of that capacity so that parents and early childhood teachers know just how serious a difference they can make if they're willing to simply engage their children in some of these activities. Yeah, I, I very much want to come back to the oral language question 
mm. in a minute because it connects to the multi-literacies debate. Yes. But just before we move away from the structured literacy issue, I guess another thing that I'd say is important to bear in mind when a child is first approaching decoding or, or mm. learning to read is cognitive load. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that worries me about the so-called balanced literacy approach is that they're encouraged to use multiple cues for meaning. So they might be encouraged to look at the pictures, if there are some, the context of the sentence, the first and last letters of the word, and, and take yeah. an educated guess as to yeah. what, what a word is. <laughs> now, apart from the fact that I think that, you know, phonic decoding is the most efficient way to recognise an unfamiliar word. Absolutely. I, I worry that this multiple queuing approach results in a large load on their attention that can lead to confusion and, and actually do more harm than good. Yes, and I mean, we know the English language is highly irregular. So yes. while and those words that children may be exposed to in those early years of primary school are largely regular, you know, you think of some of those sort of sight words and other common words that they have, cat, dog, and so on. As children move through primary school, taking educated guesses becomes much harder if they don't have those decoding skills to rely on, combined, of course, with having perhaps been exposed to the word before in their vocabulary and other ways, so they know what semantically will make sense in a sentence. Yeah. And then yeah. you can sort of combine those two things, I guess, to, to then recognise words that are irregular. So, yeah, it, it, the idea that sort of you can get by on memory, of course, as well. I think there's a lot of research that shows that at a particular point, children simply can't guess well enough because they don't, the skills that they're relying on to guess it doesn't keep up with the complexity of the text that they've been exposed to. Or the sheer number of words that are yes. now in their reading vocabulary. That's right, exactly. So the more words they're exposed to, the more complex those texts become, the more regular the words are. You know, get, taking educated guesses just doesn't work anymore. And I think that, that I'm certainly pleased that many schools are taking on the structured literacy approach in New Zealand. I think it's made some really you know, great strides, but on its own, do I think it's enough on its own? I think we need to look at other factors as well and start putting some attention in, into homes and, and working with families and other areas to give children those good foundational skills so that when they start to learn to decode, they've got a bit to go with in the first instance. So if we if we turn to back to the oral language question then, and I agree that it's absolutely foundational to reading, and I think, you know, possibly the foremost expert on structured literacy in the country, James Chapman, I'd say he's the longest standing champion of this approach, would agree that oral language is absolutely critical. How do we address that problem? Because of course, children, young children, before they go to school, I mean, many of them go to early childhood, but even there, there's inequality of access. Yes. And it's the ones perhaps who come from the backgrounds that are least rich in oral language who are less likely to end up in a quality early childhood centre. Yes. How do we approach this problem? It, it seems very difficult. Gosh, it is. I agree. I've worked with a lot of families. Some of my research some time ago was part of a Better Start National Science Challenge, which had a huge focus on this area, obviously, and is now you know the BSLA, Better Start Literacy Approach, rolling out in a lot of schools. And what I found during some of that time was that, yes, there is an enormous difference in approaches within early childhood centres, Te Whareke, I think, it's, you know, 
could be stronger in terms of the standards that and expectations around teachers and the development that children can gain in early childhood. There's a an idea, I think, that they, their learning doesn't really start until they get to primary school anyway. You know, there's all of these little things that play a part. I think families, in my experience, I've worked a lot with families because I think that's sort of often the forgotten player in the mix. And families, a lot of parents have said to me, that's not my job. Mm. The job of the early childhood centres, it's the job of the uh, you know, primary school teachers. So therefore, not interested or they feel that they can't make a difference because perhaps they're not a trained early childhood teacher or, or primary teacher themselves. And if, in my work has been around saying, look, it's remarkable the difference you can make if you simply engage your child in conversation, read to them, sing to them or sing with them, get them to talk. The more that a child talks, the more they have to use their own oral language skills. All of those things play a part. So I'm not suggesting that it's simply a matter of parents sitting down and talking to their child and suddenly they're all going to become, you know, reading War and Peace before they know it. But these things do make a difference. The more words children hear, the more sounds they're exposed to, the more they understand parts of a story by having been read and told stories. All of these small things can make a difference. But, you know, that takes time. We're up against things like devices, the amount of time that children spend on devices or sort of being left to their own, if I say it, devices. Devices, yes. <laughs> That's a problem as well. And that, these things compound. Yeah, they, they do. And I think you can't emphasise enough the importance of conversation because that's how oral language is acquired. Exactly. And I actually think a, a fundamental error made by the whole language school of reading was to assume that literacy was like oral language in the way that it's acquired. And anybody who's raised a child will have seen the miracle of a, a young infant. And by the, their second year, they're already articulating words and then in their third year, they string sentences together. And this is without any direct instruction. It's without any any input except the very rich input of conversation around them and, and being spoken to. And, and so human beings are attuned to acquire language in this way. But they're not attuned to, uh, to acquire literacy in that way, which is a technology that's been overlaid on oral language quite late historically and not in every culture. Exactly. And, you know, I think it's in the English curriculum at the moment, you know, literacy is said to be comprised of, uh, you know, talking and listening, viewing and presenting, reading and writing. My argument, and I'm perhaps we're in agreement here, is that literacy, the focus has to remain on reading and writing. Yeah. While oral language and, you know, talking and listening play a key part in I guess, providing a platform to grow reading and writing skills on to say that, you know, listening to a story is the same thing as writing a story or reading a story. They're simply not, you know, that they're related, obviously. You know, I know when I've seen young children start to tell their own stories, you can see sometimes them draw from stories that they've been told. So my argument's always, you know, that if the more, the more stories children hear, the more they have to draw from when they're telling their own stories so that's definitely important but to say they're the same thing I, I think it's wrong quiet and let's come back to stories at towards the end of the session because the, there's some interesting questions I'd like to ask you about that as well but 
what you've raised here is this idea of multi-literacies. And I'm reading now from the draft common practice model that the ministry has produced. Now, the common practice model, uh, as it sounds, is supposed to be adopted by every teacher in the country as an approach to teaching literacy and numeracy. And there's a section in the literacy part about multi-literacies, and it says that we need to recognize the five modes of meaning-making, the visual, the gestural, audio, spatial, linguistic, and value different forms of representation. And it goes on to say that the multi-literacies approach gives practical effect to Titaritia Watangi by honoring multiple languages, dialects, and cultural contexts. And here's the important part, by recognizing new and emerging modes of communication. So this seems to connect to what you were just saying about the presenting and, and so on. Yes, but it unfortunately has gone probably a lot further and into a really concerning space. I mean, what you were reading, Michael, my first, inst or first I guess, reaction was it's just got cultural relativism written all over it. While it's important and I've spent half my time telling people what I'm not saying. So I'm not saying that different cultures don't have something to offer and I'm not saying that different cultures don't have value. Different practices that different groups may do are interesting for various reasons. But this idea of equivalence is really concerning. I've had people tell me that bridal henna is a form of literacy. You'd better explain um, what that means to our <laughs> listeners. Well, I had to look it up as well. I thought I knew what it meant. And it turns out, unfortunately, I was right when they were referring to the sort of henna tattoos that I think it's Indian cultures may put on their hands. I'm assuming it's related to weddings. I don't know if it's related to other cultural events or practices as well. Samon Siva, a dance. People have told me that is literacy. Reading carvings in a meeting house and a funny noise literacy. Now, it simply isn't. And in the case of carvings, you know, I always explain to people, I cannot walk into any marae around the country and simply read the stories by looking at the carvings. They may serve as a memory prompt where I might recognize an octopus or something. So I think, well, that's possibly Cooper's story. But that's it. I have to know the story first. So the idea that you're reading carvings in the same way you might pick up a book you've never read before and be able to read it, that's simply not the same thing. Is there value in understanding carvings and things? Sure, for some people and for many people, yes. Is it the same thing as reading a book? No. But the danger now of the approach we're taking in New Zealand education is that a teacher's going to say, well, this child here, I know he or she, they're very good at reading carvings or I know that they can do a very good Samoan Seba or whatever it may be have little concern for their literacy skills, and by that I mean reading and writing skills, but tick the box to say that that particular child has literacy skills because of this insistence that we expand the definition of literacy to include things that simply are not the same. Mm. It seems like a formula for perpetuating intergenerational ethnically based inequality. Absolutely. The children who rely on a good education, I feel like I've been sort of always on this bandwagon for different things, but it's so important. The children who, like we talked about earlier, aren't in rich home literacy environments. They're relying on schools to give them these skills that aren't just a skill in and of itself, but they're a tool that you use not only for the rest of your time at school to access other parts of the curriculum, for example, but it, beyond school, throughout our lives, you know, the impact of there's strong evidence to show 
the higher your literacy rates or, or skills are, you know, impacts on your lifelong learning, health and well-being, ability to engage in civic affairs, all sorts of things. So I think it's criminal that we are expanding literacy in this way to say that a child who has particular dance skills or particular cultural abilities is the same as a child who's able to read books and things. Yeah. Oh, gosh, it's so dangerous. And we're doing just to say a disservice to those children as an understatement. Yeah, I think the, the really critical thing is what you mentioned that if you can read orthographic systems, whether they're alphabetic or perhaps, you know, more ideographic like Chinese writing, you're in a position to comprehend novel expressions that you, you, you haven't encountered before. The ability to write using orthography gives us access to a, a literal infinity of meanings, whereas mm. these other systems, we could actually say they are forms of symbolic representation because mm. there are elements within them that carry particular meaning so and and like you, I, I certainly wouldn't want to downplay their cultural importance or the, exactly. their spiritual importance. And these are wonderful additions to a child's cultural vocabulary and and experience. But it's not a substitute for this very powerful technology that arose in several different places in the world, you know, around three thousand-ish years ago, depending on which area you're talking about. And those cultures really were pushed strongly ahead by the discovery of literacy because suddenly we have this technology that allows us to transmit information from one generation to another in quite veridical form, which isn't to say that oral histories don't do that too, but they're not quite as as expansive in a way. They it's, There's only so much that can fit in one human mind, whereas the literate corpus of the world is vast. It is, it, exactly. And I think as well, you know, I mean, some of the things that I've been told, and it is related to ethnicity, you know, the same people who are, I guess, peddling this stuff are ostensibly concerned about differences between ethnic groups in terms of educational outcomes. Yet they seem, to me, everything that they're doing is going to not only entrench that disparity, but make it worse. I've had, as an example, I've had people say to me that, you know, teaching Māori children to read and write in this way as a form of neo-colonisation, that literacy, and as a direct quote, isn't a Māori thing, therefore I shouldn't be concerned about, you know, nobody should be concerned about the rates that some children of that particular ethnicity happen to experience, certainly not all. I've had people say that one suggestion was, you know, Māori children actually talk with their hands, so why don't I research that? Well, I mean, I don't, uh, what can you say? <laughs> well, what, what you could do perhaps is remind them that some of the iwi leaders very early on after the, the English first arrived in New Zealand actually asked for more missionaries to come so that their people could be literate. I think it would, correct me if I'm wrong, Te Rapraha, insisted that every member of his iwi learn to read. Quite possibly. I'm not so familiar with the history in that part of the country, but what I do know about Tauranga, which is where I have whakapapa connections, is the literacy rate was huge. The, act was the speed 
in the enthusiasm with which so many Māori tribal groups around the country acquired literacy is something that we need to talk more about in yeah. terms of especially to refute these ideas. And it, it was in response actually to these ideas that I went back and produced a couple of articles looking at some of this history, you know, missionary registers and different observations at the time. One I recall talked about tribal groups exchanging, you know, 50-pound pigs from memory. I'm not sure if I've got that metric right. The, um, the books, the you know, what that shows, obviously, is the value that they placed on, yeah. on acquiring books. The more that they acquired books, the more they wanted more books. And, and it just had this snowball effect. People who were skilled in oratory, you know, they obviously maintained some degree of mana and so on. But a lot of the mana transfer, uh, transferred to those who could read and write because it was seen as such a valuable skill. Something like 42 Māori language newspapers in circulation around the time of the signing of the treaty right. used for political purposes, for reading for pleasure, all the arranged, not just, you know, missionary or biblical things, which is often what people think. So I guess they tangle that up with colonisation. In fact, the, the whole range of things for which literacy can be used, they were using it for. And, Funny that. <laughs> and actually, it's a wonderful thing about te reo Māori that it, it has what we might call a shallow orthography, meaning that it doesn't have irregular spellings, unlike English, which exactly. has about 30% of its words that don't correspond fully to spelling sound rules. Mm -hmm. Te Māori does. If you know what each letter or groupings of letters, which sound they're associated with, you can read everything. Yes, you can. There's, there's no surprises. <laughs> yeah. So... I would like now, just in the last few minutes, to turn to the, the question of stories. I, I noted that you'd written a column quite recently about the the sanitisation of Roald Dahl. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Perhaps you could t tell the listeners what I'm talking about in case they don't know. Yes, of course. Well, unfortunately, I think it was Penguin, the publishing company, decided to sanitise, I guess, some of Roald Dahl's works. And they had, gosh, I can't remember the term, but it was something bizarre like safety writers or something going over each of the texts to remove any content that may have been deemed offensive. Sensitivity um, writers, I think. Sensitivity writers. Yeah. And, and of course, when we're old Dahl's concerned, it's all offensive. And that's what's <laughs> wonderful about it. Exactly. That is the magic of Roald Dahl. He deals with the, the nasty and the gruesome and the frightening. And But that's what pushes children's imagination. You know, that's what attracts children to these things in the first instance. So to take those things away from his work is to remove the very thing that makes his work so magical in the first instance. Now, I grew up reading Roald Dahl. I've read all of his books. I've reread most of them now with my son and he's reading them as well. Now, I think in the start of that column, I relayed a story about him reading my copy that I, I had when I was about six. The third time he's read it and he said, oh, this book is just so funny. I don't want it to end. <laughs> yeah. uh, if we've got books that engage children, he didn't have to read it. He was reading for pleasure. Why on earth would we mess with those? For the sake of what? And, and to be honest, some of the suggestions were quite bizarre. You know, they... I mean, there's the obvious ones around, you know, related to gender or race or whatever, where people felt that perhaps others may be offended by that. But some other really unusual, unusual things. So yeah. one description I think had a had, was suggestion was that you couldn't call Augustus Gloop from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You couldn't call him fat, but you could call him enormous. And I thought, 
don't know if that makes much sense to me, but okay. The, the, the whole point about Augustus Gloop was his gluttony, wasn't it? So. Exactly, yes. So, so his sort of physical appearance, I guess, in terms of a child's imagination is crucial to the character and, and all the imagery and everything that, that goes along with his, scenes in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, including, if I recall, getting stuck in the, the chocolate, the river, chocolate the pipe. pipe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, I, I mean, you've already kind of made this point that if we have the, the kind of sensitivity police going through all our children's literature and cleaning up all of the things that make it uh, offensive or scary or any of those things, we'll be left with a corpus of literature that is just not appealing to children. And that will defeat, you know, to go back to the start of this conversation a lot of efforts to improve literacy because if children haven't got wonderful stories to read they're not going to be as engaged and absolutely exactly and you know the research already shows that as children move through the later years of primary school and into intermediate years you know there's a huge decline in them reading including reading for pleasure so there's a lot of work going on at the moment looking at that and how can we engage children in reading beyond what they have to read Roald Dahl has played such a crucial part in that and to mess with his works oh gosh it's heresy as far as I'm concerned cultural <laughs> vandalism is what I'd call it it is it is cultural vandalism and you know if you don't like the books hey here's buy, an idea don't read them buy different ones yeah <laughs> Buy different ones. Don't mess with the classics, especially when we're trying to engage children in the wonderful world of reading. And Roald Dahl, to me, is just, you know, he's at the pinnacle of it. Well, Melissa, I could talk to you all day and probably longer about these literacy-related topics and, and many others too. So we must have you back on the New Zealand Initiative podcast before too very long. But look, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. Pleasure. And a pleasure to come back anytime. time.